My name is Herb Cutchins. I run a war on poverty program dealing with the administration of criminal justice. And from my experiences, I've become deeply concerned over many of the problems that are confronting the police and that are confronting all of us about police operations. There's a series of policy questions, I think, that have to be answered by the public at large as to what they want from the police and how they feel the police should operate. I was arrested in a, during the summer of 1964 approximately 20 times. Do you think that there's some kind of problem the police are trying to get at? or what, I, think, what? I think it's more or less personal. I, I don't think it's to obtain the law or to uphold the law. Every time I was arrested on this law, uh, impersonation for purpose of lewd act or intent to deceive for the purpose of defraud, it would result in the loss of my job. Many people would be concerned as to just why a policeman or the police department should be particularly concerned. I feel that all my life I have had the feeling of being a female entrapped in the body of a male. I've read Dr. Benjamin's book, The Transsexual Phenomena. I guess we should point out that you're certainly not a young social worker who's joined the police force. You've had a lot of experience with the police. And, and then I came to Central City and met Elliot Blackstone and talked to him and discussed this with him. I was arrested in the city of San Francisco. We were isolated in a position where we had just each other to talk to. And I was told about Elliot Blackstone's group of kids that he had in the transsexual organization of COG. When a transsexual is arrested, they're, they're treated very poorly by the officer, denied privileges that the other inmates have. I was placed in a cell, deprived of all privileges, because I wouldn't get a haircut. And I wonder why it's more unsanitary for a transsexual to have long hair than for a woman to have long hair. I think that they're trying to break you down mentally. If a policeman is to be successful, they all must have a value in his approach to people. I always knew that I wanted to be a woman. About a year before the Stonewall Riots, this program titled Transsexuals and the Police aired on KPFA in San Francisco on April 10, 1968. KPFA was a very progressive radio station from its very beginning. The station won a Peabody Award for programming that criticized McCarthyism. They brought beats to the airwaves with Allen Ginsberg. The state attorney general impounded tape discussing marijuana on the air. And back in 1950, the station owner went on the air to proclaim his resistance to the Korean War, like right after he launched his radio station. They also aired the first known radio program to overtly discuss homosexuality. That archival audio will be on my bonus podcast tomorrow. As listeners of this podcast know, this show is all about chronologically telling the story of the movement, and I had planned on releasing this archival audio as an episode of my bonus podcast on Patreon, but today, in 2020, people all over the country are marching for black transgender lives and to protest the brutal ways police treat our trans siblings of color. I thought this audio should be heard now instead of waiting until the podcast story reaches 1968. This audio is 52 years old, and many of the issues discussed between the moderator, three trans women, and a police officer are still issues we're dealing with today. And this is not a confrontational debate. The officer in the conversation is Elliot Blackstone. Blackstone was a police liaison to the gay and trans community of San Francisco, appointed after the raid on California Hall and the Compton's Cafeteria riots. Put a pin in those, of course. Blackstone was yet another example of how San Francisco was often the exception to the rule. 
He worked closely with the Daughters of Belitis, the Mattachine Society, and the Council for Religion and the Homosexual. He taught community policing courses, changed policies to help transgender people, taught sensitivity training to police officers. He took up collections at his church to pay for hormones for trans people denied by the city clinics. He is proof that if our cities would defund police departments and put their money towards social services, citizens can be helped instead of brutalized. While you're listening to this conversation, scroll down to the episode notes to see where you can donate to support Black trans lives. Happy Pride. In order to try and sharpen our wits and try and understand some of the problems a little better, we're going to discuss a number of issues that confront the police either properly or improperly. Last week, we talked with a group of youths who felt that their main problem was that they wanted to assert their dignity as men. And the racial and political problems they felt existed uh, in trying to achieve their dignity. We have a very unusual group of people tonight who have perhaps a very different point of view and who have had some experiences with the police and who want to tell something about that to add more to our general discussion about police problems and police practices. We also have with us Elliot Blackstone, a member of San Francisco's Police Community Relations Unit, who has worked closely with this group, COG, and who will comment on a number of the things that come up. Uh, Let me begin by in a very general way, by asking what COG is. Uh, Well, my name is Sylvia, and uh, I'm a member of COG. The letters COG stand for Conversion Our Goal. And uh, a little higher, sorry. Uh, uh, Stands for Conversion Our Goal. Uh, This means uh, to be converted sexually into the, uh, how shall I put it? Physical sex. Physical sex, which we desire to be. Is that sufficient? Um, A lot of the discussion now has centered around the introduction of a new idea, the idea of a transsexual, which differs from homosexuals and transvestites and a number of things like that. I think maybe if we try and talk a little bit about what a transsexual is, we can Mm -hmm. get even a clearer picture of of what the problems are that you're trying to deal with. Well, a transsexual differs from a homosexual or a transvestite in that a transsexual desires to have a transformation of their genitalia in order to be able to live and perform as a uh, member of the sex to which they were not born. And I think the others are well known. Homosexual. Would you like a definition of a transvestite? Go ahead, you tell me. (laughs) Well, a transvestite is uh, basically a person who uh, desires to wear the clothing of the opposite sex, and this is usually, uh, in the case of men, usually uh, there is a sexual connotation to it. However, in the case of women, I have found this is not always true. It is not always a 
sexual connotation, some of them feel that they have a sense of power, which is more important to them than the, uh, the sexual connotation. Now, you have identified yourselves as transsexuals, it's being members of COG. Uh, how did you come to the idea? How did you realize? What can you can you tell me a little about the experience of uh, of discovering that you were transsexuals? Why why don't we everybody uh, join in and, and talk a little bit about it? Well, my name is Judy, and uh, I feel that all my life I have had the feeling of being a female and trapped in the body of a male, which was given me my status at birth. And uh, of course I went through all the stages till I found out that I was a transsexual. Uh, myself at the age of about 12, I felt I was a homosexual. And at 14, I started dressing in a female attire, which I classify myself as a transvestite, and at the age of 18, I knew I was a transsexual and not a sex deviant. I felt that, well, I was just entrapped in the wrong physical status, and I decided to change my physical status to the best of my ability, which would be sex change surgery. and. I've been working on this ever since to achieve this. How did you come to COG? Um, I was arrested in the city of San Francisco, and at this time I was placed in a cell with other people of my nature, which we were isolated in a position where we had just each other to talk to, and I was told about Elliot Blackstone's uh, group of kids that he had in the transsexual organization of COG. So when I was released from jail, I went down and spoke with Elliot Blackstone, and at this time was introduced to COG and the Center for Special Problems, and which is helping with the organization on all this. And uh, since then, I've been participating actively in the group. How about you? Me. My name is Mandy, and uh, I, I've been acquainted with the transsexual, I suppose, for about four or five years now. I had read about him earlier in magazines and uh, newspaper articles, and uh, I knew I was different from the homosexual and the transvestite because of my feelings. And. I, I, I couldn't make up my mind. I was, I was very puzzled because I was afraid that I wouldn't be recognized. And at this time, I wasn't recognized to the extent of being a transsexual, but more or less a transvestite because of the type of work that I was engaged in. And then I came to uh, Central City and met Elliot Blackstone and talked to him and discussed this with him. And uh, from there, I went to the Center for Special Problems and talked to a psychiatrist and a social worker there. And all this time I knew that I was a transsexual, but I was afraid to accept this because I had gone through the homosexual and also the transvestite stages. But yet 
I always knew that I wanted to be a woman. Sylvia, do you want to say something? Well, yes, I, uh, my, mem my memories go back uh, on this subject as far as I can remember. I have always uh, desired to be of the opposite sex ever since I can remember. But, of course, when I was a child and in my part of the country, this was absolutely unheard of. And uh, nevertheless, when it finally Christine came around uh, and I realized it was possible, I have worked toward this goal ever since, but it has been the motivating force in my life. There's no question that uh, it's been uh, far stronger than any other drive I've ever had, and, and it still is, and uh, I will attain it if I live. Let's try and move on to some of the police problems that uh, you faced as transsexuals and I, I, uh, you've told me before that COG has been in discussions with the police department and maybe you can describe some of that and we can get f focus in a little better on some of the problems that we're, uh, we're concerned with. What would you care to go into first? Well, we talked a little earlier about uh, 650 and a half. Why don't you explain uh, something about the, uh, the uh, 650 and a half law? You want to uh, say something? Uh, I don't know the real definition on 650 and a half. To me, it's interpreted as uh, impersonation for purpose of lewd act or intent to deceive for purpose of defraud. Uh, it's quite a vague law. It's parts of it was stricken at one time as being unconstitutional. And Nobody actually knows the real meaning of this. It uh, is applied to people wearing the attire of the opposite sex. It's been applied to me. Well, in 1964, it was applied real heavy on just about anybody wearing clothing of the opposite sex, which at this time I was arrested in a during the summer of 1964, approximately 20 times on the 615 and a half law, which every time I went into court on it, I was dismissed. I was never convicted of it because I never showed intent to defraud or deceive anybody. And uh, I do not wear the clothing of the opposite sex for this purpose. I live this way because it's the only way I can obtain an honest living. I feel I have to be this way for this purpose. And at the times I was arrested, I was working and as a female in different places of business. I've been a cashier in a theater, a cocktail waitress, a food waitress. I've been uh, a secretary. I've been a performer on stage. But then Every time I was arrested on this law of 650 and a half, I would have to remain a couple of days in jail before coming into court. And as I didn't have the funds to bail out on, and uh, it would result in the loss of my job and, and uh, things like this, which they made it very difficult on me at this time to make an honest living. Uh, it's still a wonder to me that I never resorted to prostitution or anything of this sort 
Because if I was going to be arrested anyhow, I might as well do something to be arrested for. And, uh... Mandy, do so. you want to add something to this? Well, Judy's <laughs> covered it quite thoroughly, but... I know I've been arrested several times, also for 650 and a half, and also for 647B, which is prostitution. And, uh... I know there was an awful lot of times that there was this was not necessary, but yet it was carried through because I think of prejudice involved, which a lot of the policemen have for homosexuals or people with a sexual deviant problem. You think that there's some? Do you, do you think that there's some kind of problem the police are trying to get at, or what? I think I think it's more or less personal. I don't think it's it's to obtain the law or to uphold the law. I think it's it's more or less a personal reason, other than them just being out there to arrest someone, which really isn't guilty of the crime that they're being arrested for. Elliot, you have some you you know the law pretty well. Uh, can you uh, explicate a little further and talk about what uh, the police are confronted with when uh, 650 and a half comes up? As I think it'd be wise to talk a little bit both about 650 and a half and 647B and what they mean and how they affect people. Also about how 650 and a half of the penal code stands today as to how it stood possibly two or three years ago. As has already been mentioned, there has been a change in the interpretation of this particular law. Originally, uh, the law also included a phrase, an outrage to the public decency. It was a test case in Southern California, which interestingly enough did not deal with transsexuals at all, but it dealt with a topless modeling show. But the conviction on this particular case went up to the state Supreme Court and the ruling came back basically that the term, an outrage to the public decency, was so broad as to be ambiguous and therefore unenforceable. Now there are two ways that we can change a law. One of them, of course, is to either vote the law out or replace it with a new law, or what we call case law, wherein the decision of a court will affect the interpretation of the law and thus change the total effect of the law. Now this is what has happened, of course, in 650 and a half. Now, as an outcome of this modification of the law, at least as far as San Francisco is concerned, there was a different philosophy about what we might call wearing drag, or a situation in which an individual primarily a male, would wear the clothing of the opposite sex or a female's clothing. 
Now, the interpretation of the law now then would tell us that if an individual was wearing the clothing of the opposite sex without any effect on the rest of this statute, that this in itself would not necessarily constitute a crime. But if the individual were wearing this feminine apparel with the intent to commit a fraud, uh, to pass themselves off as a person of the opposite sex with the intent of violating another law along with this. In other words, uh, for example, soliciting an act of prostitution, uh, drawing the assumption from the potential client that he was dealing with an actual female, that this then would constitute a violation of the remaining portion of 650 and a half. Now, of course, 647B of the Penal Code is the basic prostitution charge. And in all actuality, if an individual, a male, dressed in female clothing, were to solicit prostitution, in all probability today in San Francisco, the arrest would be made on this charge rather than on the 650 and a half. In some recent cases involving 650 and a half, where there has not been any attempt to defraud, but a simple wearing of feminine attire, the cases have either been dismissed by the judge or have not been prosecuted by the district attorney. So therefore, it would seem on this basis that the courts in San Francisco do say that it is proper for one to wear feminine attire, even though they may be a male, if they are not committing some other violation of the law along with this. Well, the 650 and a half seems to get itself linked up with the prostitution charge. Can we talk more about that, about why it is that uh, uh, for transsexuals the problem of prostitution comes up frequently? Uh, uh, what what's involved there? Why does this happen so often? Well, I think we can probably explain that this way. If you take an individual who, and let's not say at this particular point that the individual has identified themselves or has been identified by proper medical authority as a transsexual. Let's just say that the individual is a male but is wearing feminine attire. Now, obviously, they are wearing the feminine attire because they cannot function adequately in a male role. Now, in many cases, not only can they not function adequately in a male role, but because they are not natural-born females, they cannot function successfully as females. They may not have uh, the grace, they may not have the stature, uh, they may not have all of these intangible things that a natural-born girl learns from the woman who raises her, whether it's her mother, her aunt, her grandmother, whoever it would be. Consequently, this individual is not really then functional as a female either, and can't do what we would classify as legitimate work. So therefore, this individual not being able to function as a 
male and not being able to function in legitimate work as a female resorts to prostitution as a means of making a living. Now, I would imagine that many people would be concerned as to just why a policeman or the police department should be particularly concerned about this kind of a problem and uh, really worry about these individuals. Well, there are, uh, actually, I think there are three factors there that we should consider. First of all, of course, uh, prostitution is a violation of the law, and quite frequently, along with prostitution, go a number of other violations of the law, such as a uh, situation where you're involved in drunk rolling while conducting business with a uh, trick or a john, as the uh, ladies of the evening will call them. Uh, drunk rolling or strong arming, uh, any number of other offenses may go along with prostitution, so this makes it a definite concern of the police. Now, another factor that is also a concern of the police is suicide. Uh, in our responsibility to protect the public, uh, we also have the responsibility to try to prevent suicides. And if an individual is so confused in their identity or so unable to make a successful living and without visible hope of clearing up the situation, the possibility of suicide becomes much greater. Also along with this, uh, the mental health of the individual can suffer and they can become if they can see no way out, can become a menace either to themselves or to society. So because of these three factors, the criminal aspect of it, the mental illness, and the potentiality of suicide, this then becomes a concern of the police department to work out some kind of a solution for people with this confusion of identification to assist them in Number one, gaining identity, and number two, in becoming functional arms of society. This is why, uh, indirectly, I became involved with this particular concern. I guess we should point out that you're certainly not a young social worker who's joined the police force. You've had a lot of experience with the police, and. How did you come to it uh, with, uh, how did you wind up being concerned with this problem? Can you tell us a little bit more about your, <clears throat> your adventure? Well, of course, I think one of the first things that concern here is how long have I been a policeman? And the answer to that is 19 years. I think this is important, uh, not because of, of the time span itself, but because of the fact that if you are engaged in active police work over the years, you do come in contact with so many things outside of society, so many things that uh, the average uh, bookstore clerk or typist or even radio personality would never come across. These experiences all add up, and if a policeman is to be successful, they all must have a value in his approach to people. Also, I have been a member of the Community Relations Unit for three years now. 
in addition to this, uh, because of my assignment to work with the poverty program and even more close to home, my assignment to work with the Central City Multi-Service Center, I have the opportunity to come in contact with more people who are concerned as to their sexual identity possibly than would many other police officers in another area of San Francisco. I first became acquainted with this particular problem when I was approached by an individual about a uh, year and a half ago. I thought when I met the individual I was dealing with a transvestite, a, a situation that I was familiar with. The individual pointed out to me that uh, she, and I use the term she because this is the way the individual projects and, and as do the other individuals whom I work with who are categorized as transsexuals. This individual explained briefly to me what transsexuality was all about and suggested to me that Dr. Harry Benjamin, who is considered by many to be the outstanding expert on this field, might be of assistance to me. I've read Dr. Benjamin's book, The Transsexual Phenomena, have talked with Dr. Benjamin on this and have worked with a number of medical groups and people who are concerned in the field of social services to become fully acquainted with all the problems that the group of transsexuals come across. Uh, in my work I have now dealt with over 40 individuals who have classified themselves as transsexuals. Uh, whether they use that specific term or not, their identification was sufficient that I knew what they were talking about and in my work with the Center for Special Problems I've been able to get a great deal of assistance from them in further identifying the individuals. Let's try and focus a little more on the, on the particular police problems of transsexuals. I think that one of the big problems is in the jails. What happens when a transsexual is locked up? Would anybody care to say something about that or explain some of the problems that, uh, that are involved? Well, one, I think the segregation is mostly, and, and uh, also the prejudice that is involved here. Uh, when a transsexual is arrested, they're, they're treated very poorly by the officer, and they're more or less mocked and made fun of, which I don't think is right. Also, we're denied privileges that the other inmates have, and, and we're looked down on. And I think the way that, the way that they harass us on the streets and also in the jails, well, it comes <clears throat> from a personal grudge or something another. Mandy, are you talking about harassment in the past or harassment today? Well, this would, to me, would be in the past because now I don't, that I'm working. It's, it's altogether different because I'm leading an entirely different life. Uh, the reason I ask this is I want to clear up this point of harassment. If one is on the receiving end of questioning or being stopped, uh, the response quite logically would be, uh, I'm being harassed. 
but let me ask you for a minute to put yourself in the policeman's shoes out there on the street where he has a particular problem of prostitution going on. Uh, would the policeman not be remiss in his duty if he had a reason to believe an individual was involved in prostitution and didn't try to take some steps to correct it, whether it be through arrest or uh, whether it possibly would be through assisting the individual in getting employment and getting them off the street? Well, um, I think that the harassment comes from a personal grudge, Elliot, really. Now, I know that I can't say that now because I'm, you know, I lead an entirely different life, but before, a lot of times I was harassed for no reason at all, and this was, a lot of times, was just to be talked to, and then there was times that I was taken in because there was a personal grudge. Well, Judy? six months ago, well, seven now to be exact, on a personal grudge an officer had from three years prior, I was arrested on 615 and a half and false identification, which I spent 10 days in jail finally getting into court on it. When I did get into court, the false identification was dismissed, and I was convicted on the 615 and a half because of the prejudiced way the officer had written up the police report. And this is the only reason I was convicted on it. I've been arrested on this law many a times in the past, even before it was revised in 1964 when I was arrested on it, I was dismissed. But at this time, through the report the officer wrote up to be submitted in court to the judge, I was convicted of it. And I did spend five days in San Bruno. Can we uh, clear up a particular it. point on this? Uh, was this case tried on the police report, or was there testimony from you, from the officer, and from others? Uh, no. I asked for a trial by jury, and they held it over for several days. And at the time, I didn't have the money to bail out on, and I had another hold on me, an old probation hold. And uh, so I couldn't bail out, and they put it over. And when I came into court, I submitted it on the police report. Well, on submitting it to the judge, and waiving jury trial, you also waive the right to submit witness on your own behalf. It is submitted strictly on the police report, and the judge does make his decision from the police report, and they, they advise you of this when you do submit it and to the judge on the police report. And the judge himself, I felt, was a little uh, prejudiced towards me at this time also. And at the time, he did dismiss this uh, false identification. But on the 650 and a half, the district attorney wanted 15 days in view of the other hold on me and everything. But the judge only gave me five because I'd already been in 10. And it was strictly on the police report. I did get to make a statement. The judge did allow me to make a statement. And I explained to the judge just what had happened at the time of arrest. And on the police report, it was pretty much to what had happened with the officer's view on it. And this is what the judge went on, was the officer's view of the situation, and which uh, I have to admit, uh, 
had the officer uh, been able to overhear the conversation that was involved and everything, he would not have written a police report this way. But the officer also told me that he did had waited some time to get this arrest on me, and when he did get this arrest, he did tell me I was going to get convicted of it. And I feel he did write the police report with a little prejudice involved on it. Basically, then, what we're saying in your particular case is not a matter of lack of justice, but of things that happened to you because you could not afford number one, to make bail, right. uh, number two, that you could not afford an attorney. attorney. Now, had you been able to afford an attorney, there would have been a, a different uh, type of plea yes. here. It would not have been submitted on the right. report. Now, if I had been able to obtain bail and get an attorney, I would have fought the case and I would have won the case uh, because at this time I could have brought witness then and it, the police report would have had very little bearing on it. But when you're not able to do this financially, you have to go by the way the courts are ran right now. And when you're herded around like cattle and one judge in a sitting in a morning will see 85 to 100 people in a matter of four hours, and they really don't have the time to go into the case any further than the police report. And so the judge goes on the police report and strictly by the police report, and this puts it all on the police arresting officer who writes the reports, in other words, has the right then to convict the person or put it in a, a, a nicer light for the judge to allow the judge to dismiss it or bring a light sentence or anything else. And it's, it's very much upon the police report at this time in the courts. And I don't feel this is right because I don't feel the police officer has the right in writing this police report through his own eyes because any person is not able to see everything that is happening and they can only write about what they do see and for the judge to weigh a conviction so strongly on one officer's uh, version of what took place when a person is not able to obtain witness at any time and and once the conviction is brought in, you're just there, and it's a long legal process of having it changed and, and all this. It's, it's, uh... <coughs> well, basically, Judy, what we're talking about here, then, is, and don't let me put words in your mouth, but uh, a really a situation wherein, again, had you had sufficient funds right. to, to prepare an adequate defense if you could have called an attorney in, who could have uh, in turn presented, for example, you mentioned that you were talking to someone and if you had had an opportunity through using an attorney to bring out what the conversation consisted of and everything, it wouldn't have been necessary to just rely right. on this one particular right. document. So that, uh, and again, I'm not trying to put words in your mouth, but what you're really saying here is that it was not entirely the officer who is responsible for your conviction, but to a very great extent, your own personal poverty that contributed greatly this, to it. This is correct, but then it all stems to the same thing of the justice in the courts of San Francisco. Uh, I feel it's very inadequate. I know from a fact it's very inadequate because 
the public defender, at the same time the judge is seeing all these people, is running all these cases in the same morning at the same time. The public defender cannot get adequate representation for you. Uh, there's just so many things involved, and when a person is, well, when I was arrested, I was treated very poorly. Uh, I was made on a misdemeanor charge. I was made to strip down in a, in a tank-type cell and be searched uh, in front of 14 other people and laughed at, made fun of. Uh, then I was taken back into a cell and into a tank that is strictly for the homosexual or transvestites, uh, transsexual type people, and put in there on a mattress with no cover on it, no blanket, and stated, stay there. I was not, I did not make a phone call. I made one that was incompleted, <coughs> and I wasn't allowed another phone call for 24 hours. And then I had to pay for the phone call on a public phone myself. And I was treated very, very poorly. And I feel that the officers at the time could have treated me a little more fairly than they did. But then, of course, they have a lot of people coming in and a lot of drunks, and they are busy themselves. The police force is not adequate to handle it, I feel. When you have a mass production of people being arrested, you do what you have time to do. But then I do feel that they are prejudiced towards people of my stature. And so they just herd us around like a, a goat or something and run us through and forget us and throw us back in a cell. And, and we're uh, OR project itself and bailing out with them. A lot of us don't have the uh, proper things to be bailed on an OR project, such as to show stability <laughs> in the community for a period of time and things like this, uh, we're just stuck. What, what I can think we we're, do? What I think you're talking about, I think you've put it very vividly, is not so much uh, the, the uh, really the harassment of any individual, but sort just of the, the monumental treatment. Uh, the, the system which somehow shouldn't even be employed for the kind of problem we're talking about. If you're a transsexual and you have these kinds of problems, you, you may need some kind of help, you may need some kind of direction, but once you get hooked into the whole criminal process, it just tends to break you down more right. and more. I mean, a transsexual is not a criminal. I think, Judy, that you brought up here, too, another very important point, and I'd like to take us forward to cover, you know, how this particular thing has been handled. I hope you'll agree with me that prejudice is almost invariably the result of a lack of information this or of misinformation. True. And I think that probably this would be the time to talk about a recent meeting uh, that was held wherein members of COG, uh, high-level members of the police department, and members of the medical profession who have worked quite extensively with transsexuals, including staff people from the Center for Special Problems, sat down together in an educational meeting so that uh, the transsexuals could tell their side of the story, could, could say, this is what I am, and this is why I am as I am. 
the medical people could say, this we understand about the problem of this individual and the people from the police department could get information uh, to understand why there is a difference between a transsexual, a transvestite, and a homosexual, or a drag queen. Sylvia, would you like to talk well, a little bit about the meeting, or Judy, you, one of you? Uh, I'll, I'll let Sylvia go on the meeting. Uh, is what I was trying to convey earlier, Elliot, was the lack of knowledge the police department and the justice setup of the San Francisco courts and everything now is the lack of knowledge about transsexualism. They treat us as common criminals and because they don't know that a lot of them, even the word transsexual exists, they treat us as common homosexuals, sex deviates, uh, somebody to spit at or preverts, something that should be locked up and throwed peanuts at once a week, you know. This is really the way they, they handle a lot of it because they don't have the knowledge that this is not a crime, it is a mental status, a mental problem. And uh, I feel that anybody that can be educated in the field of transsexualism should look into it for their own personal knowledge also, not only to be involved in it, but just to know about it. It would change their outlooks and views on sex deviates and everything that they never even dreamt consisted in this arraignment of type people. I, I'd, like to, I'd like to extend this just a little further. We've talked about how the, the, the lack of knowledge by the police, by the courts, the whole system which seems to militate against the best treatment of, uh, of transsexuals. But I think there's even a more fundamental problem, which is that nobody knows much about this transsexuals. I mean, it, uh, the police react and respond. They're, they respond to public demands. They respond to public pressure. And I think it's the public at large who, that has to understand a good deal more about it. it, it I know that, that Elliot and I know that all of you are involved uh, in, 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 in trying to bring the message across as to what, what's going on. Uh, can, can you... I, uh, this, this goes back to the old proverb, you can lead a horse to water but you can't make him drink. Now if the public is not concerned enough with their city and their society to go in and find out about these aspects when it is available to them is all they have to do is ask. Well, I think what we need to say here, Judy, is who do they ask? Because we've said, you know, that this is a, a problem that very few people know anything about. I think this would be a very appropriate time for you to get in a plug for COG. The yes. fact that COG's, one of COG's fundamental purposes is to uh, disseminate information about uh, what it is like to be a transsexual, what the problems of a transsexual are, what the aims and goals of the organization actually are. Uh, I think, again, going back to this subject that I uh, tossed back to uh, Sylvia to talk about, uh, the meeting that was he uh, set up by COG uh, to meet with the police department, this, in my way of thinking, is part of this process of education of the public. So 
I think that if you, for example, were to mention that uh, letters of requesting information about COG or requesting information about transsexuals could very properly be directed to COG at uh, 330 Ellis Street, San Francisco, uh, that certainly the uh, members of COG would be glad to pass information back to people who are concerned, who who have heard tonight for the first time, you see, about what, what a transsexual is. This they never is, even were aware of this word before. <laughs> that these people would write to C-O-G, 330 Ellis Street, San Francisco, uh, that certainly efforts would be made on the part of the organization to, uh, to answer their questions. I believe that uh, Sylvia can speak on this more adequate than any of us as she's kind of acting secretary for COG, she feels she can state more information than I have myself of the organization that if she'd wish to... <clears throat> well, uh, COG was formed about uh, six or eight months ago as an outgrowth of a group that met at the Center for Special Problems, which was primarily for a um, therapy group, uh, Psycho psychological mostly, which we felt we didn't really need. We formed our own group, uh, COG, and could do things which we couldn't do in uh, the Center for Special Problems because of the uh, uh, st stipulations against it uh, due to the fact it's a uh, city organization tax supported. So we have done quite a lot. We've set up our goals and uh, our bylaws what what are the goals of uh, basically COG? basically our goals are about threefold we desire recognition from the legal profession the medical profession and the law enforcement agencies plus society as a whole plus society of course and i feel i have always felt personally that these three uh you might say agencies medical legal and law enforcement are more or less bound up with uh, public opinion. Until we can change public opinion, uh, these agencies will have to operate according to uh, what the public feels. So we feel, I feel, we must go to the grassroots of the situation, the public. If we can educate the public to the uh, idea that we are not harmful to society, that merely to live dress and live as a member of the opposite sex uh, basically does no harm to anyone. Many, most times we're not even recognized as being a member of the opposite sex. So, and we could hardly be harmful. Of course, if we break other laws, obviously, like anyone else, we should be uh, stopped in this. But if we do not, then we should be allowed to live our lives as we must live them. And it's not a question of of choice, we are almost forced into this, some of us to the point of suicide or self-mutilation, which is fairly common. But let's talk about the posi positive program for transsexuals. What are the steps that you're trying to go through to finally uh, uh, recognize your full status as a transsexual? Well, of course, uh, one of the primary concerns of the group is to stay out of trouble with the law. Of course, naturally we need employment, but this is why section 650 and a half of the penal code is so important. Uh, this is 
where basically I could walk out of my front door at morning in the morning to go to my job and be arrested as I walk out my front door or at any other time during the day when I'm out, when I'm doing nothing more than just living as I feel I must. As I say, if we can just get this one thing through, I think this will be really all that I would ask. I'm not ask I wouldn't ask anything unusual. Well, Cog, it is trying to educate people that we are not a hindrance to the public we want them to acknowledge the fact that transsexuals exist to the professional people such as doctors and lawyers and officers and judges and things, then to we have the organization for other people who feel this desire in themselves to meet on Wednesday evenings at 3.30 Ella Street at 8 p.m. and we meet weekly there and this enlightens themselves to where we try and help them find themselves also. In other words, if they feel this desire and they come, they're welcome. We do all we can to assist them, to aid them, to help them. Um, if they dress in the attire of the opposite sex and are a complete transsexual and feel this, we do everything we can to seek employment, to aid them in trying to help them with employment, uh, to help them get to the doctors that can diagnose their case properly and possibly take them into a hormone therapy group, uh, a group therapy, psychiatric clinic, uh, just all around help the persons. Even persons who aren't transsexuals are welcome because everybody that contributes to another human being is helpful. Anything they can have to offer to help other people. Who well, knows, there may be some transsexuals listening who never knew it and who may this is seek their true. way to this you. This is very true. I, because there's girls that, since we have started our organization, that have heard about our organization and have come there and possibly once a week they only get to dress this way in the opposite as the opposite sex and come there and they're very relieved it's, it's because a this, great this is something strain. that they that they they feel and they have they have an opportunity to come there i must say and understand what what this is all about you see no one is laughing at anybody everybody is welcome and anything that we can do to assist them and aid them, we're trying to do. We're trying to help ourselves and help others at the same time. Herb, I think it might help. You know, we have talked all this time about transsexuals, but possibly we have not clearly identified yet um, how this situation comes about and why it is not hopeless, why there is uh, a possible way out for people who are involved in this kind of a gender identification problem. Uh, I know that there are going to be those listening who are going to disagree with what I have to say about how it comes about. Basically, this is uh, derived from material 
from Dr. Harry Benjamin because of the fact that this gentleman who maintains an office in New York and usually works in San Francisco during the summer, this is a man who has spent a number of years in studying this particular phenomena. Uh, basically, his feeling is, we have a situation here, you know, it's easy to look at a person who has uh, 12 fingers or 12 toes and say to yourself, well, there, the good Lord made an unfortunate accident. Uh, he created a person who visibly is not as others are. But it's much more difficult for us to look at an individual who has the psyche or the emotions or the soul, I don't care what term you choose to use there, a one sex but has the body of another sex. Now, psychiatrists tell us that this particular individual, once they have clearly identified themselves, cannot be helped by therapy, by psychiatry, uh, to regain their emotional posture that their physical condition indicates. Well, if it's not possible to change the mind to fit the body, then the most practical approach, if you're going to have a whole functioning individual here, is to change the body to fit the mind. Now, this is a very drastic step, whether the individual is going from a male role to a female role, or from a female role to a male role. However, again, the psychiatrist suggests that certain steps be taken prior to such a drastic physical conversion. And these things include living and operating full-time in the emotional role. This means if an individual is physically a male but emotionally a female, uh, that they should then dress as a female, they should work as a female, and that it is entirely proper for them to take the medical steps to change their body. Now, you've heard mention earlier of hormone therapy. Uh, actually, this is a matter where certain physical changes take place in the body, feminizing the body. Now, this goes back to something that Mandy said a long time ago about putting the individual in this particular cell. But really, let's consider the factor that it would be extremely embarrassing and possibly quite dangerous to put a male with a developed breast into a cell block with other males. I say confusing because at the least it would gain additional ridicule for the individual. At the most, it could lead to almost any kind of a problem. So that when the individual is going through this particular step and they are arrested, the most practical approach is to place them in a segregated type of environment such as this for their own protection as well as uh, a minimum of confusion of operation of a large facility. Now, once the individual has gone through these preparatory steps 
and uh, they also include, for example, the uh, matter of removal of the facial hair because while the hormone therapy will affect the body hair and will actually uh, change the fatty structure of the body in uh, more ways than just the uh, bosom, uh, the only way that you can correct the facial hair that I know of is by electrolysis, which is a long-term and expensive proposition. In other words, to get a person ready for surgery can quite easily be a three to five year proposition and can cost easily two to five thousand dollars. Now the surgery itself is another problem that must be faced here. At the present time, Johns Hopkins University at Baltimore, Maryland is doing limited surgery. However, it is my understanding that based on the waiting list that's already in existence, that it would probably take a minimum of 25 years just to take care of those people who are now waiting. Also, um, the University of Minnesota has set up a test program involving 20 individuals upon whom surgery will be performed in a 10-year follow-up study to see what the overall effect of surgery on these individuals was. Now this program is completed, it's full. It has its 20 people, it's not going to take any more people. There are private doctors who do the surgery. Uh, there's a doctor in Chicago that I'm aware of, there's a doctor in Casablanca, but the expense on this particular situation is very heavy. Uh, it can range from five to $6,000, and this doesn't include the necessary follow-up. So that we're talking about a situation here uh, that can run the individual anywhere from five to possibly $25,000 if they go through all of the things that may come about. For example, uh, if they modify the uh, larynx so that the individual does not have a prominently masculine Adam's apple. They modify the shoulders so the individual does not have excessively masculine shoulders. They can modify the hands, modify the legs. Uh, I've heard of an individual in France who uh, uh, went through extremely extensive uh, remodeling. Uh, however, I've also heard that as a result of this extensive remodeling that uh, a gentleman offered a million dollars to spend the night with her, so possibly the investment was worthwhile. I don't know whether she took advantage of the situation or not. But we're talking about something here that is expensive, and this is one of the reasons we're talking about the need for public education, uh, for public acceptance of a problem which cannot be corrected from all indications any other way than through surgery. Without public acceptance, uh, surgeons are reluctant to involve themselves in a situation such as this. They're afraid of the possibility of the charge of mayhem. Uh, they're also afraid of the possibility of loss of their license for unprofessional conduct. And this is, this is a very worthwhile worry on their part. We need support from the legislative arm of our government if they believe that this problem can be corrected through surgery, then possibly there need be a 
interpretation through so one, once again the law rears its ugly head and uh, just as with abortion there's a real uh, it sounds very similar to the abortion problem where I think there's been very wide public recognition of the need for abortion yet the problems of changing the law are uh, extremely difficult. When you see with abortion you have relative public acceptance of this problem. Uh, you have relative public desire to see the law changed in the field of the transsexual. The public is unaware of the problem. They're not about to say, let's change the law, when they don't even know about the problem. So we sit here tonight, I think, telling the public there is a problem. Understand it, and understanding it, take steps to correct it. It is not a matter for the police department to change. It is a social matter, not basically a criminal matter just to be a transsexual. It is a criminal matter if a transsexual violates the law, much as it is if you or I do. Yeah, I, I would like to talk about a little specific in this, the problem of just hormone therapy in jail. I know that uh, this has been an issue, and I think if we point this up, we might even get further into the the type of problem. Well, you go back to the same thing there, too, of you have a prescription from a doctor, a licensed physician for hormones. There some taken in shot form and some take pills daily and everything. You're arrested, you're placed in a cell. You're derived the privilege of taking your medication. Now, this medication physically is not demanded by the body. I mean, you can miss your hormone therapy for a, a few days and it will not really hurt you too badly. But then there's the mental stress and strain you go through for lack of your medication. There's the aspect, too, of the officers in jail. They give drunks medication to keep them from going into DTs. Yet, we have our pills with us when we're arrested, the majority of us and everything, yet they take them away from us and will not give them to us to let us have them. Of course, it would involve them in going along with uh, the doctors and medication on this too, which they don't know if they're legally able to give us these pills and everything. It's the fact that why are we deprived our medication when other people in jail aren't deprived theirs? Elliot, you wanna, did you want to say something, Sylvia? Yes, I'd like to say one thing. Uh, <clears throat> Elliot asked a little while ago if uh, this harassment was in the past or if it was continuing up to the present. Now, I don't know from personal experience, that is my personal self, but I know many of the girls, most of them, and as a matter of fact, there was harassment, at, at least in one case I know of for sure, where the girl was a prisoner in a San Francisco prison, I believe. It's, I don't know why I should mention the name or not, where it's located. But she not only was uh, uh, denied use of her uh, pills for hormone, hormone therapy, but also her hair was cut. Now, she had hair, I think, below her shoulders, 
and it was cut to about, I think, around two inch inches long, inch and a half or two inches long. And uh, I have heard, and this is, uh, as I say, I haven't experienced it personally, but I, hear, I heard the reason given was for a reason, for sanitary reasons. And uh, this is not done with women, and they have, some of them have long hair. And I wonder why it's more unsanitary for a transsexual to have long hair than for a woman to have long hair. Uh, well, maybe somebody. Sylvia, in, in, in answer to your particular question, of course, we're aware that this uh, institution we're talking about is not controlled by the San Francisco Police Department. But also, as I understand it, and I'm not speaking as a spokesman for them because mm -hmm. I am not that aware of their formal official policy. But it is my understanding that this policy is not particularly just set example for transsexuals. Uh, a hippie individual would find himself in the same position. They state that their standards are that one shall have uh, moderately cut hair. Now, I also understand uh, that it if an individual chooses not to have their hair cut, that if they choose to remain uh, in a cell rather than having a certain amount of freedom, that this is also allowable. Now, I'm not an expert on this, but this is the information that I have been given. Therefore, the individual under these circumstances would have to personally make up their own mind as to their choice of action, whether they wished to have their hair cut to what is described as a reasonable length or whether they wish to remain in a cell. I'm not arguing uh, the policy on this because it's not a policy which my department has anything to do with. But mm -hmm. this is the way that I understand the policy. Well, speaking from experiences, <laughs> this is inadequate. Um, uh, the particular place you're talking about. When I went there, I was given the privilege of saying whether I wish to keep my hair or have it cut, which I wished to choose to keep my hair. I was placed in a cell, deprived of all privileges, couldn't buy cigarettes, couldn't buy anything, because I wouldn't get a haircut. Uh, in a matter of a few days, they come around and almost insist upon a haircut, which, to which time you refuse. You are replaced in a strip cell, which is called, more verbally, the hole, until you do submit to having a haircut. Now, if you've got 90 days to do, 90 days is a long time to sleep on a concrete floor, and this, more or less, does not give you the privilege of choosing to keep your hair then. In other I words, you either do I, it... I think that they're trying to break you down mentally, because I know when I was there, well, it's been almost two years ago now, I had about 90 days to, I believe, and I was, when I first went in, I had my hair pinned up so that you couldn't tell it that it was long, and it was down past my shoulders then. And... Uh, after they found out that my hair was this length, I was put in lockup. And I, I think I was in lockup for 19 days, and then 
one of the guards came by and told me that unless I got a haircut that I that the rest of my time, my good time, my work time would be taken away from me and I'd go to the hole and do the rest of my time there. And this really they were trying to break me down mentally to the point where I would have to and I more or less had to because I couldn't I, I couldn't see sitting in a a hole well, or seclusion for ninety days and, and <clears throat> I think then I, I I didn't have any problem of dandruff or anything like that that was contagious. Well the question that I did want to clear up though, uh Judy or Mandy, uh, did you feel that this was something that was just done to you as transsexuals, or did well, were, you I think, aware, I think, were you aware that uh, hippie individuals were put in this? Well, same two, now two years ago, two years ago, I don't think there was a problem of the hippie. Well, but I know. Now, I, I know, I know individuals that did go out there that are hippies. that that had privileges and weren't put in lockup. That hair was twice as long as mine. That true. weren't actually transsexuals, but were transvestites, and, and they received privileges that the other inmates received where I was denied them because of my hair. And Yet I they were they not would... forced to get their hair cut. There was one particular hippie that was transported to, uh, the, at the same time I was, from San Francisco's jail, and... Uh, they did not, no question of getting his hair cut at all. It was all get mine cut. And he went to a regular tier, a regular where the men go. And I saw him, after I was released, I saw him about a month later. When he was released, I think he had 20 days to do, with his hair. And he says he didn't have any problem with them trying to get him to cut his hair at all. This is this is true. I've, I've and this was six months ago. Number of individuals. I think I though. Think I think we can say though that as a po policy, there 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 is just a policy on the part of the uh, county jail to cut long hair. In fact, there's a there's a, uh, a court case pending by some hippies who are objecting to this policy. The whole matter is going before the courts. But, you know, I want to I pull something out of this. See, we, we're starting with a situation where uh, there are people in jail who probably shouldn't be in jail. They're in jail because of a whole lot of confusions, a whole lot of problems, and then the problems keep building up. Uh, you, 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 what we're doing is asking police and jailers to somehow be more versatile than, than anyone else in society to understand the problems of transsexuals and even the problems of hippies and all these individual problems where they can barely uh, staff a jail. It just isn't the place to try and deal with these kinds of problems. And what I was trying to pull out is are some of the problems that exist. How do you figure out uh, how to control drugs and still allow transsexuals hormones? Uh, because well, the, I don't, this isn't a drug. It's a medicine. No, what I was suggesting is, is that they really have a serious problem about the, uh, the, the infiltration of, of dangerous drugs in the jails, and they're constantly worrying about that. And that's part of the problem they're trying to deal with. Uh, well, this is, this is uh, very true, but uh, this, this leads into something else also, like in the jail that we were in, about the way that they treat us there. And, and the things that we're denied where the other inmates 
that are no better than we are because we are human beings. The, the privileges that they receive, we don't receive because I know once I asked to go to church and this guard said I wasn't worthy of going to church because of what I was. And I don't think that should have been brought up because no matter what you are, your religion is you, and your belief is your own. I think we're going to have to end shortly. Why don't we go around once and let everyone have their last say about uh, COG, about uh, transsexuals, about police. Uh, just a, a general last statement. Mandy, would you like to start? <laughs> I really don't know where to start. Um, I think that the police department should really take a look on what problems they do have that arise in the jails, especially with homosexual, transvestites, transsexuals, and not only in that field, but in all fields of crime. And I think they should open their eyes to these things, really. Sybil? Well, I feel that with all of the uh things going on in the world where people actually are harming one another, actually doing physical, mental, or other damage to another person, that it's time we quit trying to legislate and enforce uh, morality, especially personal morality, which in most cases does no harm to anyone. Uh, the country, I think, should wake up to the fact that uh, a person, what a person does with themselves and to themselves and with other consenting adults should be strictly their own business. If it does not affect society, does not harm society, should be their own business. And I think that just society should become educated to the fact that there are far more important problems where people are actually harming each other. Concentrate on them and leave the individual alone if he is harming no one. Well, I feel that the whole situation has been quite adequately covered. Um, I hope that what we have said tonight enlightens a lot of people, gives them the ideal to look into the situation themselves for further understanding, because no matter what a person does, as long as they aren't harming anybody but themselves, why should the other person stand in judgment on this? And I feel that we've covered it quite well. Well, I'd like to make a, a final plea to those individuals who've listened to us tonight and have found themselves in the girls that we're talking about, who have, have or have not identified themselves as transsexuals, but have known that there was something different about them. I would ask that these people avail themselves of, of help that is available, that they need not continue to suffer alone, that if you live in San Francisco that you contact the Center for Special Problems. It's located at 2107 Van Ness Avenue and its phone number is 558-4801. If uh, you live outside of San Francisco, unfortunately, the Center for Special Problems does not have staff enough to reach out all over the whole Bay Area. And I would ask you then 
that you talk to your private physician or to a psychiatrist you know and find out if he is aware of what the problem of a transsexual is. If he is not and you still need help, please contact me, Officer Elliot Blackstone, at the Central City Multi-Service Center, which is located at 272 6th Street. I can be reached on the telephone at 626-4636. There is someone who wants to help you help yourself. Call one of them. Whenever I've talked with people from COG, I've always been impressed with the marvelous elan, with the spirit I see in the organization, with the, the sense that there's a breakthrough, that for people who have often lived uh, a lot of their lives in darkness and in fear and in secrecy and in fear of the police, there's a new sense that uh, the world is more theirs, that there's a sense that there are policemen <coughs> they can turn to. Uh, I can't tell you how many times I've talked with Elliot about the, the extraordinary work he's been doing there and marveled at the fact that the uh, San Francisco Police Department can, would involve themselves in this kind of work, would open up the area just by uh, 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 permission for, for, for Officer Blackstone to, to be here tonight is, I think, extraordinarily important uh, to bring the message across. Uh, the, the work that's being done at the highest levels of the police department is very important. Uh, I think you've heard tonight a plea just as you did last week. Last week it was from young men who have had difficulties with the law, and their plea was for recognition as men. The people here are asking for recognition as women and asking for help to adjust to a society in this way and to stay out of trouble with the law to try and work out those problems which properly are problems of living and not problems of law enforcement. And I hope that we can uh, continue to encourage this kind of thing and, and, and allow it to grow.